0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Happy holiday weekend. Uh, And uh, for us in our family, uh, Jenny and I are celebrating, uh, we are um, parents of a 20 year old as of today, which means that we have survived all the years where we had three teenagers at the same time. And I feel like you all should give us a round of applause for surviving that. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, hopefully uh, you all are surviving your things. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. We've spent the last month talking about our spiritual life as a journey. And if you haven't been here for the last month, uh, you actually kind of came for maybe the best part of the, the series, but because uh, we're going to get out to the, the golden thread, the, the person who is, a, who is a part of every one of our journeys that makes that journey possible. But we've been talking through Moses' uh, encounter with God and Jonah's resistance to God and Esther's call-up uh, by God and the disciples' uh, ability to see and be part of the grander vision of God. Uh, today we're going to talk about the person, the, the last character in each of our journeys, who is our guide through all of that and who makes it possible. So uh, I, I'm glad you're here. In fact, after our 815 service, one of our saints, uh, w- one of the people that you would, would think, I want to be like them when they grow up, said, this stuff is why I'm Methodist. And sometimes we get that question, what does it mean to be United Methodist? And I think in, in a lot of ways, talking about what we talk, are talking about today gets at it. Uh, in in the most important way because we do think that each of us is on a spiritual journey, that God is working by his grace in each of our lives to shape us and form us into the very image of Jesus, uh, to be a representative of Christ in every place on the planet and we believe that we don't have to get that all figured out to get on the journey that God works uh, along the way to guide us. And that guidance piece, the, the role of the Holy Spirit, is what we're going to talk about today. Now, depending on maybe a tradition that you were raised in, and it, that, there, there's a lot of different teachings about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and if you weren't raised in church, then maybe, especially for you, you kind of hear t- talk, to, talk about the Spirit, and it kind of feels like maybe that's weird or that's strange or you just don't know what to do with it. And, and so hopefully what we talk about today will give some, some clarity, some maybe calm, some anxiety, and give you some, a real sense of the Holy Spirit's role in our journey. And to, t- to talk about that journey, I want to talk about another one, uh, and maybe share from what may be one of the better-known journeys uh, what, in history, uh, what we would call the core of Discovery Expedition, uh, or Lewis and Clark. And, you know, we have a point of pride here in Kentucky because we have a connection to that story. But I want to tell you that story because it gets at what I want to talk about today. In 1803, President Thomas Jefferson, talking from the beginning this journey, had a lot of heavy hitters. And Thomas Jefferson asked his personal secretary, as as we know, Meriwether Lewis, to lead an expedition uh, through the unknown territory of the United States in the assumption that there was a path, a water path, a river pathway to the Pacific Ocean. So already there is a mistaken assumption as they plan the journey, a a pretty big one, it's called the Rocky Mountains, right? The assumption was that you went up river far enough, eventually what goes up has to come down so we'll just take the log ride down to the Pacific. And what they found instead was an, an obstacle that was insurmountable in many ways, which makes this a good metaphor for our journey as well. Of course, Lew- Meriwether Lewis did all that he could to prepare, and there, was, there were classes. He, he went to school, basically, with Thomas Jefferson, and they studied botany, and they studied zoology, and they studied celestial navigation. They studied uh, the Native American uh, tribes as they knew them. They brought lots of supplies, 106 liters of salt, 176 pounds of gunpowder and 45 flannel shirts, because fashion. And uh, they gathered all kinds of equipment. They designed a boat that could be, uh, could be torn down and rebuilt out of iron framing. And then they recruited people to go along with them. And so along with that is William Clark, who happened to be his former superior in the military. And their relationship is the thing that's been studied and it's pretty unique, because they were able to work together in a way that maybe other people wouldn't have. And then they gathered a crew, and nine of those people were from Louisville, Kentucky. So you know, they set this thing up for as much success as possible. They even got a dog, and so they had a companion. Finally, after all those preparations, they set off in 1804, and it was a -a two-and-a-half-year journey, 8,000 miles both ways and they triumphed where others had failed. They found the passage, they found the Rocky Mountains, they figured out how to navigate that tremendous obstacle. They discovered 300 plants and documented all those plants and animal species, and in the process made history. There are colleges and caves and counties and rivers that bear their name, and yet, They weren't actually the first people to discover those places, were they? In fact, they would have likely been just another footnote in history had it not been for one person who helped them along the way. And you probably know her name, right? Now, depending on where you're from, uh, you pronounce it different. In fact, I grew up calling her Sacagawea. And then in, I think it's Cloverport, Kentucky, I went to the Sakajawa Festival. Have you ever been to the, anybody ever been to the Sakajawa Festival in Cloverport, Kentucky, right? One hand. Uh, Jim knows where it's at. So, uh, and they're like, they're reenacting things and celebrating and they call it Sakajawa. I won't, it's Tomatoes, Tomatoes. But the point is her presence along the way was, was the untold story in that, in that story. She was a woman in the midst of a bunch of men and she was uh, asked along to be an interpreter. Of course she ended up being more helpful than that. At one point when they found the mountains and didn't know how to navigate them and had to negotiate for horses which they didn't bring up the river all that, that way, they were talking to a, a, a chief of a tribe and in the negotiations it became clear that that was Sakajawa's brother that they were talking to. It turns out it's not what you know but who you know in those settings. She was a token of peace as her mere presence gave a sense of the group's intentions. She was able to find foods that they wouldn't have otherwise and she was able to set the course and pick the direction and point them in the right way. In a letter that Clark wrote to her husband at the end of the journey, he said this about her. Your woman who accompanied you that long, dangerous and fatiguing route to the Pacific Ocean and back deserved a greater reward for her attention and services on that route than we had in our power to give her. Elsewhere, Clark praised her as his pilot. And so, like us, we try to bring all of the resources we can to bear into our journey, and that is, that's appropriate. We, we, we do our part as much as we can. And at the same time, there's no way that we can do it alone. And this is an important message in an American context. With good American pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps individualists, the important message is that it is important, and it's not enough. We need each other, and we need God to guide us in a way that we are perhaps not prepared to engage with. We're going to need help from someone who has walked this path before us. Right before he went to the cross, Jesus told his disciples this, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow me later. That setup was not a way to lower their anxiety, by the way. These are men who had given up everything to follow Jesus and he's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to leave and you can't go. And they said, um, what now? That doesn't, that doesn't seem like a good plan to us. And they began to ask in full panic mode, Lord, where are you going? And if you're, if you're going, how can, how can we know the way? And all kinds of practical questions, and then Jesus reassures them. An important piece of the the equation that is not about the path itself, not specifically about any journey, but about every journey, he says in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, and then this word advocate in NIV, which we'll come back to, to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Do you hear the sense of presence there? And that presence of God, that way that we participate in the ongoing presence of God, is in fact what we believe it means to be Christian. It is at the heart of what it means to be on a spiritual journey—that we bring our part, and then in an ongoing way, God brings His part—and the back and forth, the intentionality, the development of trust along the way, is part of the equation. The thing that shapes you is the journey, but the thing that shapes you is God's presence along the journey, and and your need to learn to trust and rely and live out of that. Let me tell you a story about when I got uh, was on a journey. I went several years ago, about 10 years, uh, I um, went fishing with my dad. And we were meeting up. It was like I worked all day. Uh, Thursday's my my Friday. So at the end of the day, Thursday, I was rushing around to get on the road and getting all the, the stuff together to get there uh, before it got too late. It's a six-hour journey to this place in Missouri that I've been literally 100 times. And um, so I just, at the the start of that, uh, was probably five or six at night I uh, put in the GPS where I was going but I wasn't super worried about it because I've been on that path a bazillion times. About five hours of that journey is just straight roads through Missouri and then you turn north and just go up into the hills into literally no man's land for a little while and it's so curvy that growing up on those roads my little brother threw up every single time. Uh, It is it is kinda like you're in the middle of nowhere and then I began to notice that the GPS had taken me on a different route. And it's about 11 o'clock at night, and it is pitch black, and I heard banjos. I don't know how else to say it. It was like, okay, we are, we're not in Kansas anymore. And I realized that my phone might die, and the only sense of direction I had Literally in the middle of no, so these roads were this wide and, and you know There was a cow laying in the road at one point um, and I was going down the road And I was like driving right up into a house and at the last minute it went down a little path and went it, through the creek I mean it was it was it was in the middle of nowhere. I was lost without that GPS Do you know my sense of reliance on that little connection to the rest of the world? Uh, it, it was it's pretty great and that's what we mean by our reliance on the Holy Spirit. We, we come to realize that this is, our, this is our link to not only survival, not only getting along the path, but our sense of doing it well. And we learn to trust God along the way. This is what we mean, this is what Jesus means when he says he promises to give us another, a guide, who will be with us always. We don't have to worry about the connection. It is, it is there. And this is not some consolation prize to the disciples because he's about to leave. It is not a knockoff version of the real thing. But the very presence of God that has been with Jesus along the way, the spirit of God that descends on Jesus in his baptism and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, the same spirit that has guided Jesus along the way to overcome temptations in the wilderness and to take care of Jesus and lead him on a path of redemption, the same spirit that would raise Jesus from the dead. This is now the gift to us. Now, like you, I mean, I I, I can imagine uh, sitting through that little speech of Jesus and trying to process what that means. Right? It's, It's hard to know when you haven't walked the whole path but Jesus has. And and so to help the disciples grasp the role of this another, he uses a rich word. As we read in the NIV earlier, it translated it as advocate. But if you pick up the King James Version, it will say comforter. And if you pick up the New American Standard Version of the Bible, it will say helper, which might lead you to think, which one is it? Or how? What? what, is, what do we really mean here? And truthfully, it's kind of all of that. And Jesus very intentionally picked a rich word to try to help us grasp the mystery of the the presence of God with us, the richness and possibility of the Spirit of God living with us and in us. And so I want to roll through a couple of those this morning. The first is comforter. And I, I bring this up because I just think some of us need to be reminded that there is one who comforts us, that there is loss that is inherent to the journey And some of that loss has to do with just being human, going through life and things happening, losing people that we love, going through illness, having experiences that stack up on us. And then some of that loss has to do with the journey itself. In other words, it would be easier if we just didn't go on the journey. It would be easier if we stayed at home and sat on the couch. Lewis and Clark could have said, yeah, that's a great idea but it's for somebody else. And each of one of us could do the same. There's loss that is part of change. There's loss that is part of transition. There's a loss that is inherent to growth. And at every point, we have this tension. Should we just sort of go back to the couch or do we trudge on forward? Loss is a part of every journey. And we all know people who have trouble navigating losses. We all know spiritual people who end up bitter or angry or frustrated or hard-hearted because of the journey itself, because of the obstacles they have faced. And so all of us need to hear this message. There is one who comes alongside us that comforts us, that helps us in our losses as they stack up and accumulate. There is one who is ever-present always with us. Dallas Willard describes this part of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives through a story. Talks about a little boy who had experienced the loss of his mother and so it was just him and dad at home and as you can imagine nights were hard and so when uh, dad would tuck him into bed and turn out the light he felt very alone so much so that most nights he would get up out of bed and get in bed with dad. But then dad would calm him down and, and turn out the light. And some nights, even dad's presence wasn't enough. He was still scared. And so he would say, dad, I need you to make sure you turn your face toward me while I'm asleep. And then he would ask, dad, is your face turned toward me now? And, the, and dad would say, yes. You're not alone. I'm with you. My face is turned toward you. And it was only then that he could go to sleep. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit for us. When we feel like it has stacked up and we are alone, the Father turns his face toward us. The Holy Spirit is also our helper. and The the word advocate or helper or comforter catches that. The word is paraclete in, in Greek. And it it, it is all these things, it is a reminder that there is someone on the journey that helps us. It is an acknowledgement that the journey itself requires help. That really some of the, the major lies of our culture is that we don't need God and at least two have to do with this. We don't need God and we don't need each other. And how that plays out for a lot of us is that we ask for help only when we feel like we've come to the end of our rope. that we try to do it ourselves and then we get down the path and then we feel like, okay, when I'm stuck, then I'll ask for help. After 8.15, someone kind of joked with me and said, you mean to say we can ask for help from God like anytime, like before we get into trouble? Because that would be nice. And this is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our life with God can't be lived alone. The good news is it doesn't have to be. There's an ongoing way for God to sustain us and help us. We celebrate that in Holy Communion, and we're going to have communion again uh, this morning, uh, in in a minute after the message. And uh, last week we were talking about baptism, and communion and baptism are are two sacraments in in the Methodist Church that we recognize. And I said uh, that, that actually we consider baptism our launching sacrament. It is when we are initiated and launched into the journey, and communion is our sustaining sacrament. It is coming to the source again and again and finding that that God is there to help. One of my favorite communion stories is from many years ago. I was serving a church in Patronville, Indiana, where many of the members of my family attended, which made life interesting. And my cousin Faith uh, is several years older than me, and she had a little boy, has a little boy. He's not little anymore. He's in his 30s, but at the time, a little boy named Thomas and Thomas was a great kid Uh, he has always uh, been a good kid but man that kid had some energy like a lot of energy and it should have been a warning to Jenny and me about having boys ourselves but we just kind of thought maybe there was something different about him and um, apparently it's a genetic thing because um, this boy uh, like our boys was full on all the time there's a saying in the south that he was ready does that you know, like, he was, he was, there was a, a, at my grandpa's house, so his great-grandpa, when Thomas was little, he was two, he would just run through the kitchen, through the living room, back through the laundry room, a hundred times. He just kept going. He just wouldn't stop. So, anyway, uh, when uh, when we had communion that day at, Ch- at Patronville United Methodist Church, Thomas and my, my cousin Faith were in line. Thomas, as a 30-year-old man, is the most chill responsible person that you can imagine so it's just there's hope for everybody right they're in line and I noticed Thomas coming he's coming full on and faith uh, my my cousin is uh, is weary (laughs) as she often was and as they came up for communion Thomas took the bread and he dipped it in the cup and then he ate it and he just stood there kinda chomped did this kinda uh, took it down and then as he was reaching for another said I think I'll have another which I thought was hilarious but the best part was what happened after that because my cousin Faith was watching and she leaned in and she said yes please we need all the help we can get (laughs) and I think of that story when I think about communion it is an acknowledgement of a very human thing we need all the help we can get and this help comes from God We sometimes call that guidance. We sometimes call it the discipline of spiritual discernment. But what we mean by that is that we can start along the way not having to pretend like we know. We don't have to have the answer before we ask for help. It is acknowledgement that we don't know the way in life. And so at the beginning of the journey, we, we rely on God's help. And that spiritual discernment is a little bit hard to describe, but it is part of what makes us Methodist. because what guides us is we do have doctrine, we do have teaching, we do read scripture, we do pray, we do have conversation with each other, we do listen to each other. All of that flows into this very powerful experience of God's presence with us. Our leaders use spiritual discernment to guide our church. This is how we make decisions, this is not a democracy. This is not who has the most votes. It is, a, it is communion with each other and with God as we go through life and as we seek God's will. You know, as our leaders do decisions that, that, that we make, big and small, there's sort of a process to that. We do research. We dig into scripture. We pray. We tell each other's stories and we ask questions and admit that we don't know. And then we gather up all the information that we can, and then this very strange thing happens. Uh, some, some people call that, this part of the, the, the process shedding, which sounds like something that your dog does. But what it really means is letting go of as much as possible of every part of our own will so that we can say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And as we make decisions, we pray that God's will will be done. This is how we make decisions as a church. It's also how we engage our community, by the way. That, that sense, I think, of, of admitting that we don't know and that we don't have an agenda is, is the starting point of engagement. That we're gonna need God's help to show us what is at play. We begin with the assumption that we don't know and that God is already there ahead of us and we ask for God's help to guide us and through prayer and deepening relationships, we believe God engages all of us as we work for everyone's good. As you're doing that in your life, as you're admitting you don't know and relying on God's help and having to come back again and again and again, there's a stretch and there is a challenge, but there's also a deepening of your trust as you essentially have to say again and again and again, I think I'll have another. The Holy Spirit is our Comforter, our Helper, and then our Advocate. And this part, this part of God's presence is maybe the part we forget the most. The picture is of a lawyer advocating for a client, explaining their case and pleading their point. The advocate makes sure that the client's case is heard and their plight is never forgotten. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit does this on our behalf before God. There is a relentlessness, a persistence to God's grace at work in us through the Holy Spirit. It just keeps coming and that wears us down uh, and and, and in a hopeful way helps us give up our resistance. But there is a relentlessness to God's grace working for our behalf. It's sort of like when you have small children and you know how relentless they can be, especially if you have to tell them no, right? Can I do this? No. Can I do it now? No. How about now? No. No, 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 But in a way, the positive side is almost worse. Can we go to the the park? Yes. When? Now? 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 How about now? How about now? How about now? now whatever you do, there's a persistence and a relentlessness to that childlike faith. One of the saints of the church that um, that I remember from... Uh, she's been, been gone now 10 years Barbara Dillon uh, was just, uh, just so powerful in prayer she just was relentless in prayer and she would always say I wore God out today but you can't of course right the spirit of God is like that though persistent and relentless wearing God out pleading for our case fighting on our side The Holy Spirit does this for us. And when we feel like we're alone, it's it's important that there's a sense of God's presence with us. But I think it's important also to remember there's a sense of God's power pushing us at our back, moving us forward, helping us in the journey, helping us give up more and more so that we can gain more. God advocating for our best selves, the person he knows who, who we were because he created us and helping us become that. As we prepare for communion, I want to just kind of make another point, which is that God, that Jesus could have used a different word when he said he's going to give us another, this advocate. And he doesn't. He doesn't say that he's going to give us a commander who dictates the turns and dictates the turn at every point who's obsessed with us being victorious. Rather, instead, it is a comforter who comes alongside us. There is, there is an inherently relational aspect to God's presence with us, by God's design, that, they, that he's right there coming alongside us, willing to sit with us, n- not just when we're victorious, but also in our moments of greatest defeat. That Jesus used the word that implied helper and not heckler, Because God's role is not to keep at you and point at everything that you've done wrong. Though there is an aspect of of wanting to do right and giving up sin, we have help in that process. The helper who loves us enough to stick with us and give us the guidance and strength that we need when we need to get back on track. And the word means advocate and not adversary because God is for us and not against us. And if God is for us, as scripture says, then ultimately who can be against us? Every time we come to the table, we're reminded of this ongoing presence. Not something we talk about, it's something we experience, we live into. And so as we come, we trust that the Holy Spirit guides the encounter as we meet Jesus himself.